Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. Harvest Lakeshore is a redeemed family who loves God and loves others. For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Mark 12, 12. So we'll be verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said this. He is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor's, one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Olivia. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, thank you for already pointing our, our hearts to truth through, through just the singing of your word. Lord, it's true that you are holy. There is no one like you. Jesus, you are holy. Lord, we thank you that you are worthy uh, as we sang. Lord, fix our eyes on you through the preaching of your word. Lord, we want to worship you through the preaching of your word. And I pray that uh, I would be uh, invisible and that you would be, uh, it would just be impossible to ignore you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Um, this is totally normal, by the way. Um, nothing's weird about this at all. So um, we've been going through the uh, new identity series because we have a new identity statement as a church. Um, that identity statement is, it's on the screen. Let's all say it together. We are a redeemed family who loves God and loves others. So two weeks ago, we talked about redeemed and what that means for us. The summary statement for the word redeemed is, we've been rescued out of darkness, our debt to paid, and we have been made alive by faith in Christ through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's good news, right? Yeah, that's, uh, if you hear the word gospel around here, just know that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the good news of being redeemed by the blood of Jesus into God's kingdom into God's family, uh, which brings me to the next word that we talked about, and John packed this last week, uh, the word family. Um, the summary statement, as, as redeemed people, adopted children of God, having a place to belong with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, John talked about how we are a spiritual house being built on the cornerstone of Christ, which actually brings me back to redeemed, right? So something really important to keep in front of us is like every single piece of this identity statement 
uh, is held up by the word redeemed. So it, think of it as the foundation or the soil that the plant is, is planted into. Uh, we can't rightly be uh, a family if we're not redeemed. We can't rightly love God if we're not redeemed. We can't rightly love others if we're not redeemed. Um, so everything hinges on that. So this week, we're looking at what it means to love God. And the summary statement for that is, as a redeemed family, we delight in and devote ourselves to God. So you might be looking at this statement. Uh, could we put the statement back on, on the screen? Um, you might be looking at it and think like, I get it. So the first half is like we're a redeemed family. That's, that's, what, that's who we are. And then the second half is what we do, right? No, no. Um, it's not what we do. The second half is who we love. And that's a very important thing to, to mention because Jesus doesn't want to just affect your actions. He wants to affect your affections. Uh, it's about uh, it's not just about what we're doing, it's about how we're loving, because what we do always points back to who or what we love. So he doesn't want to just affect our actions, he wants to affect our affections. That's why he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. He didn't say, if you keep my commands, then you'll love me. So uh, speaking of commands, there are about 613 commands in the book of the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 613. I stopped counting after that. I figured that was going to make my point. Um, so yeah, the Pentateuch, the, the book of the law of Moses has 613 commands. And here comes, as we just read, as we just heard Olivia read, there's this expert in the law, this scribe, who's coming to Jesus and we know so much about this guy just because we know he's a scribe. Uh, so some other Bible translations refer to him as an expert in the law. And uh, good news, that doesn't mean he's an expert in keeping the law. That, does not, that doesn't compute for humans. Um, so if you're, if you're new to church and you, you're looking around thinking like, well, look at all these law keepers. Like, don't worry. Um, you're not the only one who can't seem to keep the law. Uh, let that be a warm blanket for you this morning. It does mean, though, that this guy was an expert in knowing his own failure. He was an expert in knowing that he didn't measure up. So this man must have been very insecure. And uh, what do insecure people do? Well, I can tell you that, because uh, I'm, I'm preaching for the first time, and, and I'm very insecure. Um, so what I, what I feel like doing is, is I feel like trying to justify my existence up here. And uh, one thing I'm going to do to try and justify my existence is maybe bring up that I, I met John Piper once. Um, maybe I could work that into a sermon illustration. Um, and I did. I got to meet him. Actually, I got to, to play guitar in the worship band uh, while he was preaching at, at a service. And um, it was a really cool experience. And um, we were in the basement, you know, doing what band guys do, like eating sandwiches and stuff down there in the basement of this old Baptist church. And up rolls John Piper next to us. Not, not like rolls. He was, he was walking. But he walks up to us and just starts hanging out with us. And we're just like, we're not supposed to be here. <laughs> here. Um, this, is, this, doesn't, this doesn't work. This doesn't compute. So we all start freaking out. And I'm going to save the embarrassment of the other guys who are trying to defend themselves. Um, I would love to tell you the story about the stupid things that each one of us said. Um, but I'm just going to say one thing that was said by John Piper to one of us, and I promise it wasn't me, just to, just to help you understand how 
how stupid we were being in, in, the, in the wake of Pastor John. He looks at one of us and goes, what is Top Golf?" <laughs> and, and yeah, we, we were just like, our feet were doing this the whole time. We were just backpedaling, literally. And because this guy, I don't know if you know who John Piper is. He's, a, he's like a theologian. He's one of those guys that probably 200 years from now, if the Lord has not taken us home, we'll probably still be talking about him. And he's written 12 or 13 facts. But anyway, yeah, so, so we were trying to justify our existence before Pastor John. We, we felt like we don't belong here. We were very insecure in that moment. So that's the way this thing in his heart. Um, he's thinking there are these 613 commands that God knows that I know really well, uh, and he knows that I have not kept most of them. So how do I justify that? How do I justify myself before God? So just know that all that turmoil is going on inside the heart of this man. He's a very complex man. This is not a caricature kind of story. This is a real thing that happened with a real Jesus. Um, and so he comes and he asks the question in Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Now, why didn't Jesus say all of them? Keep them all, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's something you could say for sure. Like, uh, your word, O Lord, is forever fixed in the heavens. Uh, that's from Psalm 119. And Jesus himself said, not one iota of the law will pass away until all is fulfilled. So why didn't he say that? Because Jesus doesn't just want to affect this guy's actions. He wants to affect this guy's affections. So Jesus has a shockingly straightforward answer for the guy. And he takes it from Deuteronomy 6. This is probably a, uh, a passage that this guy quotes daily to himself. He probably recites this uh, every day. So he's very very well informed of this, but Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So let's dissect this a little bit. Let's get into the word. So you shall love, love is in the Greek agapao. The noun form is agape. This is one of at least four words that mean very different things in the Greek. Uh, and in the English, they just come out as love. So it's important that we know what word that is. Um, and in the King James Version, the word agape is sometimes translated as charity. So what does that imply about the word agape? It implies, what do you do with charity? You give to charity. You give of yourself. You give of your resources. You give of your time. You give of your old clothes. Uh, all that kind of stuff you give to charity. So this is, a, this is an element of devotion. Um, but that's only half of what the word agape really stands for. If we just think of it as devotion, we'd be only half right. And, and to prove my point, like, I, I give money to the IRS, I devote money to the IRS, but I don't agape the IRS <laughs> by any means. Um, if you work for the IRS, I, I do agape you. But, <laughs> but yeah, the missing piece wrapped up in this word is delight. It's taking joy in the devotion. Um, 
We have a cat named Marshall, and this cat is awesome. He is like the best pet, not only that I've ever had, but we, that I could possibly imagine. He literally uses our doggy door to go do his business outside. We don't have a litter box for him. He, we feed him, we, I hate to say this, but we often forget to feed him, but he goes and feeds himself. He finds mice and, and he makes himself useful in eating, you know, and he like takes the heads of the mice and puts them on stakes and puts them out in front, in the front yard so that the other mice know not to come around. He's awesome. Um, but I wouldn't use the word agape to describe Marshall because, you know, I, I don't have to devote much of my time to him. I'm not very devoted to him, even though he's a huge delight to our family. So agape is a sweet mixture of devotion and delight, and that's the kind of love that God wants from us. So agape equals devotion plus delight. That's why in our summary statement, as a redeemed family, we delight in and we devote ourselves to God. So that's love. Um, so you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with everything that makes your natural body tick, with all your soul, with everything that makes your spiritual life tick. Uh, and, and by the way, that's the part of you that remains after death. And so this is not just a lifelong commandment. This is an eternal command now. Um, with all of your mind, with all your intellect, your problem-solving skills, constantly be reframing the way that you think to, towards the end of loving God. And with all your strength, with every twitch of your muscles, every time your diaphragm pulls air in your lungs, the air out should be blessing to God in delight. So to flesh it all out, we'll put it all together and kind of rephrase it. Devote yourself to delighting in God as much as you possibly can for every moment, forever. All right? Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that is, in a word, that is worship, right? That's what it means to worship, to agape to that level, uh, to, to be constantly making every movement, every, every, every thought, everything in you move towards loving an object of your love. That's worship. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 puts it this way. So whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Worship, to worship is to make your greatest love clear through your actions and your choices. Worshiping is putting one particular object of your loves, like taking everything, all, your, all of your loves and picking one and putting it at the top of your priorities list. See, worship is so much more than singing songs on Sunday morning. Uh, I cringe a little bit, honestly, when, when people think that, like, what I do is the worship part, and then what Jamie does is come up here and, and preaches the word. So it's like worship and then the word. It's, no, this is a worship service. Everything in this room is aimed at making God glorified in our hearts. So also, though, when we leave we're going to continue worshiping. And based on what you think about the most, what you do the most, how you feel the most, who are you worshiping when you leave? What are you worshiping? So Jesus, um, he throws a bonus in here, a bonus command, right? This, he, he gives us not just the greatest command, but a second greatest command. Love your neighbor every bit as much as you love yourself. Uh, and we'll unpack that next week. Uh, when we talk about loving others. Um, 
But Jesus is making clear in this one greatest command that um, we're not, he's not picking a favorite command so that we can just keep that one and then break all the others, right? It's kind of obvious in, in the nature of this command that he means that uh, we keep this command and then all the other 612 commands follow. We can't possibly break them. They're written by a God we love with everything we have. Um, and so in, in the account that Matthew gives of this, of this event, uh, Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So they're hanging on this one. But that doesn't make it any easier for us, does it? I would have to, I'd have to let every breath from now on only utter his glories. I'd have to take only muscle movements towards making him known. I'd have to keep every thought not just free from lust, but brainstorming ways I can, I can devote myself to him more. And then every second of that, be in delight over it. Just be so happy that I'm doing that. And even then, let's be real, what about the moments that have already gone by? Maybe those have crossed your mind. What about the time I can't get back? See, this is why Jesus said you must be born again. Born again isn't just a drunk, junk drawer term for being saved. He was speaking to another insecure scribe named Nicodemus when he said that. And uh, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was speaking to a felt need in this insecure scribe. If you want to justify your existence before God by doing good things, you're going to have to find a way to start all over. So there's something else you might be wondering, and you might have wondered this, like right when I started talking about how we're going to talk about loving God, or maybe you've, you saw the words love God in the, in the identity statement, and they started rubbing you the wrong way just immediately. I don't know. Um, but you might be wondering this. Is God really worthy of all of that devotion, and all of that delight? Uh, in other words, if I can't justify my existence before him, is there a chance maybe that he can't justify his command? So I want to say very clearly, that's a valid question. Um, there, are, there are many of you hurting in a lot of ways that I couldn't comprehend. Um, there are people de dealing with uh, illnesses and, and health concerns, uh, whether that's physical or, or mental or emotional distress. Um, there are people who have, who have dealt with really painful divorce. There are people who have lost sons and daughters in this room. And, um, and yeah, that's a valid question. Why is it valid? Because God answers it. He answers it in this command. He doesn't even make this command of us without giving us one huge reason that he's worthy. So let's go to Mark 12, 29 again. This is the very beginning of what Jesus says in response to the scribe. Hear, O Israel. Means every one of the people of God, listen to this, don't miss this. The Lord our God the Lord is one. So what does that mean? That sounds a little broad. Does that mean he's one year old? Does that mean this passage is denying the Trinity? 
I mean, how's that supposed to make me love God? So let's, let's ask the insecure scribe if he has any ideas, maybe what this means. Maybe he can flesh it out for us a little bit. So he responds to Jesus when he sees that Jesus gets the question right. He, he, he uh, agrees with Jesus' statement about this being the greatest command. And he says in Mark 12, 32, and the scribe says to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. He is unique. He is unmatched. He's set apart. He's not just worthy. He's the only one worthy of this kind of love. He's not like a random guy running up to you on the bluff saying, love me. Restraining order time, right? He's not like uh, any of our past presidents on either side of the aisle. If any one of them were to say, Americans need to love me, boy, would we have a field day with that. That would be just the funniest thing that ever, we would laugh all the way to the 4th of July about that one. He's not like your spouse. You know, you are, you, you devoted yourself to your spouse to love him or her, but he or she cannot command you to love them. That's not the way it works. He created us out of nothing. Isaiah 43, 7 Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, he invented us. And inventors don't make things that make their life harder. They invent things that make their lives easier. They don't make pencil flatteners. They make pencil sharpeners. But God is not just like an inventor either. See, he creates a plethora of creation. And a vast majority of it is meant to serve us, to help point us to the grandeur of God. Isaiah 45, 18 says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. His creation doesn't just serve him, it serves us. What kind of grace is that? Even the deepest reaches of the unseen universe, just the fact that we know they're there, they point us to a God who is like no one else. There is no other besides him. So did we respond to this, this generous creation by serving him? By giving him the love that he created us for? No, we betrayed him and we ran off in a love affair with the creation that was meant to serve us. We start serving it instead. Jesus says in John 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Instead of serving him, we all became his enemies. And so what does he do? He makes a friend. There's no other besides him. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, when he is cursed, he blesses. There's no other besides him. 
So he preserves and nurtures the family of Abraham into a great nation, which is when he gives this great commandment in Deuteronomy. So do his chosen people obey the command then? No. The Old Testament is chock full of stories of their half apologies and then they're turning headlong into worshiping Molech or Baal or Asherah or just forgetting God, ignoring him, completely forgetting that he's even written his commands down for them. They just go back and forth between remembering a little bit and forgetting everything about him. Over and over and over, his people are heaping up just truckloads of offenses against him. And what does he do with those offenses? He holds them. He bears them. He forbears the sins of his people. He holds on to them until there's something he can do with them other than pour them out on us in wrath and annihilate us. There's no other besides him. And he's done all this not out of duty, but out of delight. See, some of us are well aware that he's devoted to us. We know that, but we've totally forgotten that he delights in us. He's crazy about you. Zephaniah 3, 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. There's probably not a, peop- a lot of people in your life that you sing loudly about. That's not a small love. The universe was created when, when God spoke, but you, he sings about you. God delights in and devotes himself to us. You see, the same kind of love that he commands of us is the same love he's given to us, except for one major difference. We don't deserve it. So Mark 12, 32 through 33, and the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. All whole burnt, uh, sorry, all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's saying, if I could love like that, it'd be better than if I sacrificed a whole pasture load of sheep to God. If I was single-handedly responsible for all of history's sacrifices, it wouldn't justify my existence before God like it would if I could love like that. Now, who is the one person who ever lived who did love like that? The scribe's locking eyes with him right now. The insecure scribe in this moment was closer than ever to the kingdom of God. Jesus tells him that you're not far from the kingdom of God because God the Son had come down to him and was near him in this moment. And he was on the way to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices.
For God so agape the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's the same word. He delights to devote himself to the world so much that he gave Jesus. Romans 5.8, But God shows his agape for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, For this is agape, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Insecure friends and family members, how do we justify our existence before God? Jesus already did. What part of it is finished don't we understand? Or can't we remember? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, it's God's delight to devote himself to us. And he devoted himself to us ultimately through Christ. So we are a redeemed family who loves God. And the good news of our redemption is not just a feel-good story. I'm not trying to rev you up to, you know, get really excited about how much God loves us so you'll go out in the week and love God just a little bit more than you usually do. This is the power of God to give you the love that you need to give to him. That's how much grace he has. He's giving you the love that you have to give to him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And Christ himself is the perfection of that love that we have for God. He's the founder and he's the perfecter of it. And what he has started in you, he will perfect. He will finish. And on that day, you're going to look like this. And I'm going to look like this. I can't wait. Let's read this passage together. It's going to be on the screen. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. Jesus, you're categorically different. You are completely other than, you're completely besides everything else we have to compare you to, Lord. And because we see that, we know, we know that we're, we don't measure up. We know that we've loved other things way too much. We know we've placed other things on the, on the peak of our priorities list. But Lord Jesus, we trust you. We know that when you said it was finished, you meant it. And we know, Jesus, that you have given us the power of the Holy Spirit and with the Holy Spirit before, behind, by our sides, and in us, Lord, he will guide us. Lord, help us to trust him. Help us to yield to him. 
Lord, and we know that you will complete the work you began in us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. If you have found this content helpful, consider sharing the episode with friends or leave us a rating and review. For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. You are loved. Thank you.